for the week of June 12th, 2022. This is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 586, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news-making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And in Beaumont, Utah, I'm Michael Giltz. Why are you in Beaumont, Utah? Let's have it. Let's hear it. Why are you, you there? Sound, you sound so annoyed and tired. Well, because every week you're someplace new. I can't keep up. <laughs> well, Beaumont is the name of the town, the fictional town, sort of, where Footloose takes place with Kevin Bacon. Oh, And okay. they shot it in Utah. So I decided to say Beaumont, Utah, because if I just said Beaumont, you'd be like, what the hell is that? Uh, so Beaumont, oh, okay. Utah, because of Footloose, because I interviewed Kenny Loggins and my story appeared in Parade Magazine and we got a link in our show notes. I don't know why I don't link every story. You don't. You should promote more stuff from Celluloid Junkie. But anyway, I've got a link to my Kenny Loggins profile in Parade Magazine if you want to cut loose, Footloose. And I've got a link to my previous profile of David Sedaris. So, hey, you know, you want to support me and check it out there. They're fun stories. I really had a good time chatting with both of them. So, you know, check them out. Well, you know, look, I, I, I would normally promote, uh, you know, celluloid junkie or the stuff you're doing. I don't still want to get into the danger zone of like. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> the, the jokes are endless. Um, yeah. But, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I love promoting all stuff. I love thinking up stuff every week. Every week that I do this, I come up with new ideas. I'm already planning on what I'm going to say next week when we have our podcast next week. I'm all ready for oh, the secret um, surprise. Oh, yes. Hello. Uh, yeah. About next week. Um, normally, it's about last night. This one's about <laughs> next week. Okay. Yes. Um, Cine Europe is taking place in Barcelona, Spain next week, and I will be there. So if you're there, say hello, but you won't be hearing me on this particular podcast next week. Oh. So, so we'll just have to wait two weeks. I guess that shows your fans how much you care about them. But if we have to wait two weeks to hear that, we won't have to wait a hot minute to hear the new single from Jeff Beck and Johnny Depp. <laughs> They've already Are released- they in a new band? They've got an album coming out. We announced that last week. They have an album coming out. Jeff Beck and Johnny Depp have an album coming out in a few weeks, in July, I think. And they've just released their first single. Ironically, it's called Hedy Lamar. It's about Hedy Lamar, who is a fascinating Hollywood figure, a really interesting woman who did, you know, got into science and did some innovative work in that area. She's really an interesting gal. However, she's also a woman who married an industrialist with ties to Mussolini and Hitler, though she was Jewish. Uh, the man was extremely controlling, blocked her from her acting career, and kept her a virtual prisoner until she literally escaped from him and headed to Hollywood. So maybe not a person Donnie Jepp should be talking about right now. <laughs> you know? And so some people push back on, they're like, what, Michael, I thought you were Mr. You know, social justice guy and thought I didn't do a good enough job talking about Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial, which to be to to make clear, I really did not follow at all. I uh, just did not want to spend my bandwidth on that. I was recommended. I was going to say the fact that we discussed it in any way, shape, or form. Well, I, I mean, we was, didn't really want to. Yeah. Well, I do. I want to keep a shining light on something that's important in Hollywood, but. Uh, you, sometimes you don't do a good job if you're not really closely paying attention. We were pointed to the On the Media podcast called How the Media Failed Amber Heard, uh, breaking down the actual evidence in the case and making a much stronger case for her than we did. Um, she also has just done a sit-down with NBC's Today Show. That's airing this week, Tuesday and Wednesday. So by the time you hear this podcast, you'll probably have heard some of the stuff from that interview. So clearly she's not taking the... Uh, 
the you know position well i better not talk in the media until we no 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 she's not hesitating or worried about any blowback or any other lawsuits she is simply going out there and talking and of course we're certain that they will appeal that so we'll be dealing with all that stuff down the road i won't be humming hedy lamar anytime soon but i will be eager to find out what we're talking about this week well this week on showbiz sandbox we are singing and dancing and celebrating the tony awards overtures like the lights no? Yeah, exactly. It's the one night a year when I sit down for an award show and become an honorary gay, a- at least for a day, so that I can say gay in Florida. The Tonys <laughs> haven't had the same impact on grosses thanks to the pandemic. We'll look at how they might help and hurt this year's batch of productions and mention our favorite performances. And OMG, Patty Lupone! Ah, the best. Patty Lupone. Plus, we've got streaming numbers for TV and scratch our heads over Happy Gilmore popping. I guess it showed back up on, on the charts. Did they feature Adam Sandler on Stranger Things? I mean, what's going on there? Plus, <laughs> we wonder if the TV rights for cricket could throw a wicked googly at Disney's predictions for Disney+. Plus. By the <laughs> way, wicked googly, also the name of my band, um, also the only um, cricket phraseology I know, wicked googly. <laughs> Same here. Thank, thank you, you, Hope and Glory. A great yeah, exactly. Movie. <laughs> On Inside Baseball, we're talking uh, again about movie theater woes. UK exhibitors found themselves in a difficult position over a film. Uh, I guess it was about the early days of Islam. And Disney is saying au revoir to theatrical in France, unless that country changes its rules on theatrical windowing. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Gills to fill us in on last week's box office from around the world. That's right. And we're looking at box office from around the world and we're covering the entire week, as everyone should do. They did it briefly during the pandemic when grocers were so low. Why ignore three to four days of box office? Hollywood wants to boast about the biggest numbers possible. So that's what they should be doing. And guess what? Jurassic World Dominion. Big numbers. It's the number one film around the world. It grossed $335 million this week after opening up in a few territories last week. It's at $390 million worldwide. It opened big in China, $53 million from China alone. That's why Hollywood says, please just play our movies and stop telling us what to do. You know, can't we just make fun popcorn movies and just, you know, but if you release a TV show or a podcast that they don't like, they're like, yeah, we're not showing your movie. So, but China might need Hollywood as much as Hollywood needs China. We'll get to that soon. But the number one movie around the world is the very poorly reviewed Jurassic World Dominion. Fans don't seem to care. It made $335 million this week. Fans and critics like Top Gun Maverick, that made almost $200 million this week. It's at, get this, $747 million worldwide. $747. Catchy. Are, is that an aeronautical reference there that you're trying <laughs> it, to It is indeed. It is okay. indeed. So those two movies made a lot of money, and it is sort of feast and famine at the box office. We have other hits on the chart, but look at that. $300 million, $200 million, and then we drop way down to $21 million, and that's for a movie that's been on the charts for a while. It's Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. $21 million this week. It's at $930 million worldwide. It might get to a billion dollars, and if it does, it will do it without China or Russia. So that's pretty impressive for not having the number one box office market in the world, at least for the last few years. That's uh, that's telling something. It certainly was the number two box office around the world, even when, when the U.S. was on top. 
Uh, the U.S. might come back this year. It's looking like it will because the Chinese box office is more abundant. We're halfway through the year. But Doctor Strange made another $20 million. And then there's The Bad Guys. That animated film made $12 million this week. It's at $230 million worldwide. Korea has a big action hit with The Roundup. That's a sequel starring Don Lee. It made another $8 million and passed the $81 million mark. China has a modest hit of its own. I doubt it costs a lot to make. It's called My Blue Summer, and it's a romantic college drama, a perhaps a weepy, perhaps just romantic. I'm not sure, but it's about a, a female college student. I think she bumps into her high school crush at college and is like, oh, sparks fly again. It made $7 million this week, and it's at $15 million worldwide. Downton Abbey keeps chugging along. It made another $6 million. It made $7 million last week, so it's now at $83 million worldwide. It's going to struggle, though, to get to $100 million, and that's something we should talk about. I'm having a lot of trouble figuring out where movies are going to end up. You know, they're going along, they're going along. You're so used to the old days, and they fall off a cliff, either because they go to streaming or audiences just are done. You know, the older people who would have turned out for Downton Abbey clearly did not turn out in the same numbers. I mean, the original made $200 million. The sequel was hotly anticipated. They waited until COVID had calmed down a bit, but people just did not turn out in the same numbers. It's still profitable. They could still justify making another sequel, but I thought this was going to blow past $100 million, and now it may not get there. Are you having you know, th there, there is a, It is a problem, mostly in regards to the older audiences coming back. On Celluloid Junkie, we ran a, a piece this week uh, on the recovery of the Italian cinema marketplace. Mm -hmm. And they have two problems. One, their local productions have gone missing. So, and those were a big chunk of their box office. Right. And, you know, as far as older audiences, they, they haven't come back. And also, by the way, they also have... Uh, uh, mask mandates for cinemas only. It's like there's like you know half a dozen places where you need to wear a mask. Cinemas happen to be one of them. And they're like, great, one of the safer places to be. Thanks. But of course it was right. safe because people were wearing masks. So they should embrace the safety and going, hey, it's not that big a deal and you can enjoy your, your movie and when you want to eat popcorn and soda, you can take it off. But anyway, I'm having trouble figuring out where movies end up and not just movies for older audiences. All sorts of movies seem to just sort of suddenly stop and maybe it's linked to them coming out on streaming and people just, you know, like, uh, uh, what's it called? Uh, Dumbledore. The, uh, yeah, that Dumbledore just literally sank like a rock the second that it was on uh, HBO well, and Max. It was down to just like six million or something a week ago, but it just disappeared off the charts. And you felt like it was disappearing because people kind of knew it was coming out. I don't think Correct. people really live by the numbers they don't know this stuff as well as we do but once ads start to pop up saying come into streaming next week you know why go to the box office they're just making it very hard for everyone anyway the Coriida, his film that did well at con and won best actor that opened up in korea it made six million dollars everything everywhere all at once the michelle yao film that has now tripled its budget it made another $5 million this week. It's at $83 million worldwide. And even though A24 doesn't have it worldwide, numerous trade papers said, hey, this movie that A24 is distributing in the U.S. is their top grossing movie worldwide of all time. And I think it's also their top grossing for North America. It but is. It that's is. chugging along, though I felt like there were so many more territories they could have exploited. A lot of Indian films on the charts. Samrat Prithviraj. That historical epic got terrible reviews. It did make $5 million this week, but it's at $9 million. 
it seems to be falling fast and it costs $40 million to make, that's not going to turn out well. As opposed to Bul Bula Yiwa 2, that horror comedy flick made another $3 million, but that's at $30 million total. Vikram, that uh, serial killer movie, made $3 million and it's at $5 million worldwide, I think. However, Wikipedia says, no, 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 that movie's made $36 million. I think they made a mistake in translating rupees into dollars, but maybe there's a lot more money for this movie than I know. It's getting really hard to track the Indian box office, especially now that we know the chart we were using only looks at Bollywood movies. They only look at Hindu films. So if you're Telugu or one of the other regions of India, they don't follow your movie. So help us out. If you know the total box office for Vikram or you know a better chart to track Indian box office, reach out. Yes, you can write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. Or you can call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're also on Twitter where our handle is at showbizsandbox. And... We are on Facebook, facebook.com slash showbizsandbox is where you can like our page. In fact, if you were following us, you would have been one of the first to know that about the Peter Rice news, which we will get to later. Oh, we certainly will. Yeah, so we use Box Office Mojo at times for the international charts, but they take a long time to update. For example, if I go to their Indian page, uh, they have the box office for June, the weekend of June 3rd through the 5th. Uh, but they only list three movies. They're only listing Hollywood films, <laughs> and, and that's because the, that's because the studios give box office mojo right, and so and they, so they don't have any local news information on on Indian films. Uh, so that's where we were sort of in the dark about this film called, which I should looked up the pronunciation and I didn't. It's Anti Sundharaniki. It's a Telugu romance comedy about a couple that are trying to get together. They're from different faiths and his parents and her parents are not happy about it, but it's light and, and charming and hopefully has a good message. It opened to $3 million worldwide. It hit the top 10 in North America. That's the only reason I knew about it because the chart we were using for India only covers Bollywood films. That doesn't include Telugu. So that one would have fallen through the cracks if we hadn't been on the charts in the U S and I was able to find out what was going on with it. So if you can help us out, we'd really appreciate it. We definitely look at numerous big countries like India and China and Korea and Japan when we can. And China, I'm noticing sort of a pattern. They don't want to release a lot of Hollywood movies, but when they do, it makes a lot of money like Jurassic Park Dominion. They're also sort of grabbing random movies from that came out a few years ago or sitting on the shelf because they need some product in theaters. They're not willing to show a fair number of Hollywood movies, so they end up with these smaller films that no one wants to see, like God bless him. I like him, Daniel Radcliffe, but he made this film called Escape from Pretoria. It didn't get very good reviews. They weren't dismissive, but they weren't great reviews. It didn't make a lot of money, and it opened two years ago, but this weekend it opened in China and made $700,000. You know, that's not going to cut it. <laughs> so exhibitors in China have the same problems exhibitors everywhere have. They need product, and the local product isn't enough. It almost never is, unless you're in you know, North America. So it's a, it's a, it's a tough time for exhibitors and that'll be our inside baseball story, but it's a good time if you love musical theater and Broadway. Well, that's true. And that's because there are more productions than ever before. No, I'm kidding. Of course, the Tony awards were last night. 
Uh, and, uh, well, you had made a prediction earlier in the week uh, on last week's episode that uh, Six might win Best Musical, which would have pleased my daughters to no end. They just love that musical. They sing all the words. They know all the words. Did, they, did uh, you guys see it in, in New York, or did they just listen to the cast album? Uh, we saw it in New York. Oh, that's awesome. This year was very depressing for me when it came to the Tony Awards because I had seen almost none of the shows. After 30 years in New York where I saw everything, almost everything, every year, so lucky to have that. This year I was like, oh. You know, I'd seen two shows off-Broadway <laughs> and one show when it was a play and before it was turned into a musical. So, What, what that, show was that? Well, that was uh, Paradise Square, one the show that won the Tony for Best Actress. I, when I read about that show, I thought, that sounds really familiar. And I realized it was this project I'd seen in a bar, practically, a, a, product, a play mounted in a bar about Stephen Foster, the composer. It was built around his music, but it was basically a play with songs. And it morphed into this other story. They dumped the Stephen Foster music, did an original score, and turned it into a full-blown Paradise Square with Garth Dabrinsky, the former you know, convicted criminal, uh, producing yet again on Broadway, and it won the Tony for Best Actress and had a, had a good night. But uh, yeah, it was kind of a sad night because I thought, oh, I haven't seen these shows. Uh, but it's not easy. Uh, you know, I'm still eager to watch. And indeed, the overnight ratings were up 39% from last year. Wow, Broadway is back. Um, um, hold on, I'm just going to, you need to uh, maybe temper that excitement because 39% we know percentages are really important. I talked about it last week. This song has Kate Bush's song has increased 8,000%. <laughs> yeah. But, but you see five people watched it last year. So 39% would mean like three more people watched. <laughs> right. The total viewers watching in the overnights, which are probably the best numbers. Not a lot of people are going to watch the Tony's five days from now. 3.86 million people watched CBS last night. So not so great. Um, it's up, but up from virtually nothing to something. They did air three hours on CBS rather than the two hours they did last year. Plus, they did another hour on streaming. So if you wanted to, you could watch a lot of the technical categories like orchestration and costumes and scenic design and lighting. They did that on the streaming platform for an hour. Then they had three hours on CBS jam-packed with a lot of performances to their credit and host Ariana DeBose, the Oscar winner who had starred in Hamilton and starred in the movie West Side Story. So they put on a show. More people turned up. It's not exactly a big ratings winner for CBS, but maybe it's the right ratings. Maybe it's people who are young and have money or, you know, that sort of good demographic that they want. You watched the show with your daughter. What did you think overall? I thought uh, a lot of commercials. Oh my God. Like every five seconds, they were like, let's go to 15 minutes of commercials. They <laughs> That's have why I watched so many commercials. I watched on delay and skipped every commercial. Yeah. I mean, they had so many commercials that they were repeating commercials in the same commercial block. They didn't have, they, they did not Whoa. sell the air. Yeah. It was really bad. They didn't sell enough airtime. Uh, but I thought some of the performances were fine. You know, uh, certainly they opened with uh, the Music Man and, and there no, was, they, they uh, opened. Oh, did they open with the Music Man or Anna DeBose? Well, they, they opened, opened with, with Anna, Anna DeBose. She did a song, and she was lip syncing, which I thought was a really bad decision. I mean, if she's not lip syncing, I'm a triple threat. I'm I'm pretty certain she was lip syncing because she sang again at the end of the show, and you could tell she was singing live. Then there was a lot of dancing and choreography. They lifted her up, they put her down. And when that happens, you're going to hear breathing. You're going to hear sound volume changing. You're going to hear the sense that she's live. But the sound was perfect at the same level the entire time. And I'm like, 
that is not a good choice to lip sync to an opening number at the Tonys. I don't think anybody cared. She did a better job as a host than I feared she would just because she doesn't have a lot of experience of live television, but she was a pretty good cheerleader. So, uh, but then, but then they did the music man, which I was sort of confused by why 76 trombones. Well, because it, it is one of the numbers that has Sutton Foster and Hugh Grant, Hugh Grant, <laughs> Hugh Jackman, uh, Hugh Jackman plays the, the male lead. Sutton Foster plays the female lead. Uh, and, you know, for a good portion of the show, they're apart. So that, you know, in the end, they're together. And that's the the yeah, she, she's in the song, song, but all she does is dance. She doesn't right. sing. It's not a duet. And no. while it's a familiar number, the big number from the show, the one you've got to do is you got trouble. Right here in River right City. Right here in River City. I mean, that's the song that would sell it, that Hugh Jackman get, you almost made me say Hugh Grant. Hugh Jackman can sell it, have fun. You go, wow, I want to see that. Uh, 76 Trombones was sort of a nice little spectacle, but uh, not a good choice. Uh, Sutton, you know, not it's just not a not a show where she gets to, you know, to have a lot of highlights. So I think that was a mistake. But well, uh, you got I, trouble, which starts with T, which rhymes with P, which stands yeah. for pool. I thought a few of the performances would help the show as much as winning matters as much, you know, performing on the Grammys and having the people who love theater see your performance and go, wow, I want to see that show. I think MJ, the musical did a pretty good job with Smooth Criminal. I thought Billy Crystal helped sell Mr. Saturday Night. Anybody remotely interested in watching that show, the older crowd who's not turning out for Downton, they might have said, oh, I do want to see that. That'll be fun. We're and going to New York. Let's see the, let's see the Billy guy. Let's see his Saturday night. Mr. Think, Saturday night. Exactly. I think Paradise Square helped itself. Uh, they have one good number in the show from all accounts. It's Let It Burn, the 11 o'clock number in the show. And it was almost the 11 o'clock number at the Tonys. But Joaquina Colacongo performed it. She won the Tony for Best Actress. She was crying during the song. She cried when she won the Tony. Cynthia Erivo was, was cheering her on, like, you go, girl, when she finished the song. So it was definitely an emotional highlight. Not a great song, but a very good performance of the song that had a lot of passion. And I think and, and I can tell itself. you, I, I have seen that song live. I've seen mm -hmm. the show. I saw her sing it live. I was in the third row when she did it. And that number tears down the house. Mm -hmm. Do you recommend night, the show? I am not disagreeing with your statement that it is the only good number in the show. Okay. And last Let's night? Put it that way. And last night she was a little flat. I was like, wow. But that said, when I saw it, it was very early in the run, incredibly early in the run. And she, you know, now, you know, she, she's been going for a while. You asked uh, the question, why didn't Hugh Jackman shave? I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I agreed. The second I saw him, I went, you do know this is being, this is not rehearsal, right? You do know that. Well, I was wrong um, with one of my predictions. I said, we all know that the show that is, poised to win best musical is a strange loop and i said there could be an upset i think six could pull it off after that prediction i learned some information i didn't know before which was that a lot of the roadshow people a lot of the people who put on shows in iowa and they have subscription services and they want that commercial show that's going to pull in the crowds they're sort of the more commercial audience whereas the people in new york are the artier crowd that's the cliche that we have but it holds pretty true so those roadshow people that I thought would say, you know what, I like Strange Loop, but this is pretty edgy. The ones who would be pushing for something that could sell to their subscribers more easily, I thought they would gravitate to six. But it turns out a lot of them didn't come to New York. This is 
one of the lowest years in terms of turnout. The people eligible I mean for voting, to, for voting, for, turnout for voting. The people who could right. vote, a lot of them did not come into the city. Either they just couldn't because of COVID, or there were canceled performances, or you know they've shut down, they've laid people off, they've tightened their budgets, and they just couldn't justify spending the money to go to New York and have a grand old time which is what it is when you go to New York and get to see all the shows. So that big chunk of voters was not well represented, which means the artier people in New York, they really dominated the voting. And that made me say about Wednesday when I read that, going, oh, uh-oh, I, I may be yeah. wrong. So anyway, A Strange Loop won Best Musical. And now, do you want to explain what A Strange Loop is about? Because I'm going to try, okay? It's it easy. Is, it's a uh, gay black man writing a musical about a gay black man who's writing a musical about a gay black man writing a musical. Well, I think you made one step extra, but yes, it's a very self-referential arty show. It won the Pulitzer Prize. The performance of the lead actor is supposed to be terrific. It's certainly not for the grandkids, but you know, if you're an adult and you liked the Book of Mormon and some other shows, you'll be fine. And it's gotten great reviews. So that show won Best Musical, and it continues a trend of the last 10 or 15 years where smaller shows with better reviews are triumphing over shows that are maybe more commercial, but not considered to be as good by the theater crowd. Best Play was the Lehman Trilogy or the Lehman Trilogy, I should say, which was an acclaimed production that came over from the UK. Best Revival of the Music. Yeah, great, great play. play. I heard nothing but great things. Best revival of a musical is Company. Best revival of a play was Take Me Out. But they did share the love. Both the Layman Trilogy and Company each won five Tonys. But MJ won Best Actor. Paradise Square won Best Actress in a Musical. In Best Play, I was so excited. The best win of the night. Uh, best Actress in a Play was uh, Deirdre. Dear, no, 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 that she was oh, supporting play. actress. Okay. No, best actress okay. in the play was Deirdre O'Connell for Dana H, which you saw and liked, right? Didn't you see that show? Oh, yes. This is a, so Dana H is by Lucas Anath, and I think it's about his mother who yep. was kidnapped, basically, and kept hostage, uh, kind of for, as- For months. Yeah, for, <laughs> for months. a long time. It's a crazy show, and Deirdre O'Connell doesn't say a word. She is lip-syncing to the recordings of the woman who suffered this kidnapping and this hostage situation. She is on stage embodying the woman, bringing to life her words, while lip-syncing along with the original interview with the mother about what she went through. It's an absolutely fascinating play. It's a great performance, even though she doesn't say a word. And it's just a, I love Lucas Hanaf. I think I'm mispronouncing that now but uh he's a terrific playwright uh he writes great roles for women this is the second show of his to win a tony for the best actress and i'm just thrilled that she won that was probably the biggest surprise of the night but other than that lots of people won lots of shows got love uh, maybe paradise square maybe mj will get a bump and the shows that need it the most are company that show certainly needs it um and uh you know the layman trilogy is gone so, you know, that's not going to really help it. So maybe Take Me Out will get a boost, too. Everybody needs help right now, unless you're one of the two or three big shows like The Music Man. You know, you're hurting. Broadway's out. They've got the local crowd, but they don't have a lot of tourists, and they don't have a lot of locals repeating again and again, of course, because they've already seen everything. So it's a tough time, which brings us to this theater news. Uh, the Broadway musical Dear Evan Hansen is closing in September. That, However... 
It will ease past the whiz by then to become the 46th longest running show in Broadway history. So it had a long, great run. It was probably nearing its end, maybe. Come From Away, however, is closing in October. It will be just two performances short of the whiz. So it will be the 48th longest running show in Broadway history. That's two shows that are among the 50 longest running shows in Broadway history. It seems crazy to say, oh, they closed too soon. But Come From Away was made on a dime and has a very low weekly running budget. You know, to be profitable or just to stay even doesn't have to make a lot of money. So that one hurts. And the Tina Turner musical on Broadway will close in August. It opened in November of 19, 2019, right before the pandemic. It had to close for a year and a half. Then it opened up again. And now it's hitting the road with the original production still running in London where people do really love their jukebox musicals. So is that a success, a failure? Uh, I think really just needed its original star, Tony winner, Adrian Warren, to keep going in New York. She really powered that show. And speaking of London, I'll be there from mid-July to mid-August. I'll be there from July 13th through August 19th. I'm hoping to see some shows like a new musical version of 101 Dalmatians. If you're in London, come by and say hi. But meanwhile, in London, I won't be able to see Andrew Lloyd Webber's Cinderella. That show closed, even though it got some of the best reviews of his career. And Andrew Lloyd Webber wasn't there. But he had a letter read out to the cast, which kind of really annoyed everyone. He said he's proud of the show, but it was a costly mistake. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. What he meant was it was a great show. Some of his best reviews. He thanked everybody involved. They made the show so great. But he says if we'd open three months later, we'd probably still be running. But the audience booed what he said in the letter. So not a great night for Andrew Lloyd Webber. And its abrupt closing had a lot of people going to Actors Equity and saying they're screwing this cast out of some money that they need to be paid because, you know, people have upended their lives for this show and they weren't given the proper notice and they need to be paid properly. So it's hard. It's a hard time for theater. The theater is open. Some shows are making money, but a lot of shows are hurting in a way they shouldn't be. Things well, are not I, back to normal, and hopefully the Tonys will help. I think Sam Mendes put it best. He said, uh, you know, I'd like to thank the audience for sticking with the, the Lehman trilogy. Uh, in between the uh, fourth preview and the fifth preview, there were 575 days. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, the, so, yeah. It, now, it's, the parents, uh, there, are, there are some good performances to watch, and you can watch them streaming online. Just go to Paramount Plus if you're a member of that, or I think there's a freebie level, maybe. If not, you can pay five bucks and watch it all, and then cancel your subscription. But there's a lot of stuff to watch online, and we do have our Nielsen numbers for this week. Ozark, the season four finale, dropped at the end of April. It's still bringing in a ton of viewership, 1.7 billion minutes we got a new show the lincoln lawyer based on the john grisham novel uh senior year a rebel wilson comedy uh opened on netflix we'll be talking about rebel wilson on big deal or big whoop grace and frankie still doing well uh another miniseries candy that opened up on hulu and kind of like old school it's a miniseries with five episodes and they opened one episode a night so if you started watching on may 9th you can watch episode one. Then May 10th, they dropped episode two, 11, and so forth, until all five episodes were airing over a five-night period. So you couldn't binge it all in one night right away, but you could pretty much get into the show and enjoy it over five nights. Everybody's got a different way of releasing their shows. Some are weekly, like Star Trek Strange New Worlds. Others drop all at once if you're on Netflix, and that works for them. So uh, John Grisham just called uh, and I had to hang up on, on him to take a call from Michael Connolly, who said, hey, I wrote the Lincoln lawyer. Oh, 
excuse me. Thank you for correcting me. Uh, how? What a terrible mistake. What am I? And, and Matthew of? McConaughey called to say, "How dare you not mention my name when you know? Obviously, I'm the you know I starred in the movie, The Lincoln yes. Lawyer." No, you're quite right. I just assume all legal thrillers are written by John Grisham John. and how wrong I am. So thank what you about very Scott Turow? He'd say, hey, hey, yeah, what yeah, about yeah, me? Exactly. He always got better reviews than John Grisham. Well, must have stuck in John Grisham's crawl. So yeah, a lot of stuff debuted. But you know what really was the biggest winner of the week in terms of viewers? Much bigger than the Tonys. Much bigger than anything on Netflix and Hulu and all those places. It was the congressional hearings on January 6th. 20 million people tuned into last Thursday's opening night presentation of evidence and information about the January 6th attempted coup. 20 million viewers. I believe all the networks can agree with me when we say we need more coups. You know, we need yeah. more coups to drive ratings. Uh, Come on, people. The views of Michael may not be the views <laughs> of the of all the guests. Yeah, no, I, I it's what's interesting is that apparently so they did this during prime time, which I thought was an interesting move. Mm -hmm. uh, it would have been uh, probably better received if they had just let. Uh, How could it be uh, better what, received? 20 million people clued in. That's a well, that's one true. of the biggest shows of the year. 20 million people, that's bigger than almost every television show in, on network television week to week, except sometimes football. Well, by received, I mean the the reviews of said show, uh, might, which I realize it's not a show. It's, it's not a, news, a show. Yeah, it's not. Yeah. It, it shouldn't be reviewed news in that way. But it, you know, did you know that, like, uh, I'm sure people in our country, the United States of America, know now that Fox did not air it live. And that nor, was did big, e, nor did EWTN, which is a Catholic right-wing uh, news channel that uh, okay. a number of conservative Catholics watch. It was very telling that neither of them could even bother to show it. Yeah, so that's that's interesting. Well, also, the, when you when you were listening to the testimony there and you realized, oh, actually, there were Fox News hosts that were Tweets actually yeah, part exactly. of the, There might be a reason why they don't want that airing live. No, uh, there's but a the reason second, why they should have been airing it live, but anyway. It, the second day is actually happening as we're recording right now. I did not know the second day was yes. today. Yes, it is. And there'll be more hearings and evidence over the next few weeks, I believe. It's not like, you know, every day in a row. So uh, that'll be something worth watching. Certainly daytime, it will not have the same reach, but we'll have to see if that keeps gaining traction. Uh, certainly they're making news and sharing information we haven't heard before. But Disney... They want to be a big winner and streamer. I'm sure they were happy to air the hearings live on ABC and get some good ratings. But they're also looking at how to keep those ratings going. And sports is the way to bring back people. Sports, events that keep happening week after week. They're live. You got to see them. You want to see them. And that's why they were bidding on cricket. Now, bidding yes, for well, the rights to the Indian Premier League are taking place even as we speak. Uh, people thought Amazon would be a big player for them, but Amazon said too much for our blood. They, they took a pass. Sony was outbid. Uh, and then we had another big player. We thought Reliance and Disney would be battling it out. But instead, the, the streaming rights for cricket, which Disney previously controlled, they had both the streaming and the TV rights in India for cricket, and they've given up on the streaming rights. Those went to Viacom 18 for $2.6 billion. Disney's subsidiary, Star India, kept the TV rights for cricket for about $3 billion. Why does this matter? Well, Disney Plus has about 140 million subscribers worldwide, and over 40 million of them are via Disney Plus and Hotstar, the Fox subsidiary that Disney acquired in India. 
Now yeah. they're predicting they're going to hit 230, 250 million subscribers by the end of 2024. Well, maybe not without cricket. You know, they've given up on streaming rights, which means there's less incentive for people to hold on to their Disney Plus hot star. Now, some people say, look, the deal would have been a money loser. It's too much money. They could spend the money better in other ways. The amount people pay for their streaming subscriptions in India are much lower than in North America. So it just really doesn't matter that much. I'm like, in yeah, fact, okay. there, there has been some discussion as to why is it that Disney in India hasn't moved Hotstar over to become Disney Plus? Well, there's a reason for that. It's because they're, you know, the average revenue per user in India is like $2.50, $3. I'm making that up, but it's really low as opposed to. Well, it's to- really low for Disney Plus in India, too. They're in a market where they cannot charge the six, eight, ten dollars that they might charge right, in the US exactly. or elsewhere. But it's really but they're packaged together in a lot of cases. And that's where Disney Plus they are people who have Hotstar who get it via Hotstar, they get Disney Plus. And now without cricket, Hotstar may be less popular, which means Disney Plus may not lose a lot of people. People who have it might say, okay, we're gonna stick with it, but they might have some churn and new people looking to sign up are probably gonna go to Viacom 18. So they may have just taken a hit in terms of total subscribers worldwide. Maybe it makes sense in terms of finances, but they certainly need to adjust their subscription predictions if they hope that to come out. And, you know, if they fall short of their subscriptions, oh, my God, it's such a big deal. People get really upset. Well, yes, especially the stock market. I mean, when they fall short, you'll see their stock price takes a huge hit and we'll explain why that is uh, in, in a moment, because in fact, if that's a big deal, I wonder what you think about some of the stories we have this week in Big Deal or Big Whoop, because it is time for Big Deal or Big Whoop, our weekly segment, where we discuss the top headlines and entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Our first story, this story, I have to say, blew up on Twitter. I just could not believe that the Sydney Morning Herald was a part of it. So Rebel Wilson is dating a woman, to which I say, Okay, uh, am I supposed to care about that? Uh, in a social media post, Wilson said she'd been looking for her Disney prince, but it turns out she should have been looking for a Disney princess and then shared a photo of Wilson and her new girlfriend. Now, Wilson, for those who, who don't uh, know, she was she's an actress and, and a comedian, and she was in uh, Pitch, Pitch Perfect. Perfect and lots of other movies, yep. Yes. And she has a new well, movie out on Netflix this week. Yeah, yeah the, the picture was very sweet, except... Not so much. The whole the whole thing wasn't so so sweet. The Sydney Morning Herald revealed in a column that it knew Wilson was dating this woman, reached out to Wilson for comment, and gave her 48 hours to do so, and then was miffed when Wilson stole their thunder by revealing it herself. Oh, but they didn't out her, okay? Not at all. No, they That's didn't what out they her. Say. That's what yeah. they say, yes. A- after a huge outcry, the paper pulled the column, and the gay reporter who wrote it said perhaps the tone was off, and they were sorry, and wish her the best. You know, sorry about that. Anyway, have a good day. Got to go. Uh, big deal or big whoop? Well, it's a big whoop in the scheme of things. I hope for Rebel Wilson it becomes a big whoop, and that she's like, all right, I'm out, and has a happy, good life, and feels better about it, even though it didn't happen the way she wanted. She wasn't in charge of deciding when to do that. And that's always a shame when people do not have that ability, unless, of course, they're actually causing tremendous damage to other people and are hypocrites, in which case it's arguable. Like if you're head of the Defense Department or a politician passing some anti-gay laws, if you turn out to be gay, that does seem germane. But for the vast majority of people, you want them to know they should be free to come out when they're ready. It's a different story for everyone. So it's a shame it happened this way. But for God's sakes, 
How dumb are you, Sydney Morning Herald and columnists? It's bad enough they did it, but then they wrote a column saying, oh, look what we did. <laughs> and, and didn't even yeah. realize how asinine and ridiculous it looked and how offensive it was. And it's by a gay guy. Like, come on. <laughs> like, you know, just, I think that the, what the Twitter backlash was instantaneous and like we thought the yeah. Sydney Morning Herald was like a reputable paper. Like, when did it become a rag? Like uh Well, there'd be nothing wrong with saying, hey, we've we, we've heard you're dating a woman. We're not going to, you know, would, if you'd like to comment, we would do a story. If you're not comfortable with that, we won't. You know, you could do that if you so chose. It's news. You're allowed to do that. But they did it in such an abusive way where, like, you yeah. got 48 hours. They could have approached her in a different way. I've often interviewed people who were clearly gay and, I, and who weren't out. And I'm like, hey, like Jonathan Groff. You know, I'm like, at the end, I'm like, hey. You know, this was when he was in Spring Away. I'm like, hey, you know, I also write for these other outlets like uh, The Advocate and Out. And if you ever wanted to talk to them for any reason, you know, he'd love to chat with you. And he'd be like, oh, you know, he understands. He knows what you're saying and doing that you're not going to out them. You're not trying to pressure them. But if they ever wanted to, we'd love to, you know, to have you in there. So that's, um, you know, what that's did you think of the it. Spring Awakening reunion yesterday? Well, I haven't watched the HBO documentary, but I love that show. I love the revival I saw with Deaf West, Deaf Theater West from, from your part of the country. And it didn't completely wow me, but I was happy to see it. They're all smiling at each other and seemed happy to be there. Now, have you been listening to more audiobooks, Michael? I have. <laughs> and, and, and what about kid, kids? Are kids, they must be. Are your what? kids? Are your kids listening to audiobooks? Have they ever done that? Yes, they have. It's their way of oh. reading books sometimes. They can right. read faster with, with the audiobook. Uh, and, and that would mean, by the way, that, that my kids aren't alone. You're not alone. Uh, for the 10th straight year, the audiobook category in North America, at least, has enjoyed double-digit growth. The companies who report to the Audio Publishers Association say revenue grew 25% in 2021 during the pandemic, a big jump over the 11% increase of 2020. Total sales hit $1.6 billion. Romance saw a big jump in popularity, though sci-fi and fantasy remains the most popular genre in the format. And for the first time, a majority of parents are reporting their children have listened to audiobooks as well. Big deal or big whoop? Well, it's a big deal. We've seen this trend for a decade now. Audiobooks are huge. They're not going away. They're a, a billion dollars on their own. That's a big category. But please, as we've said about some other stuff, look, next year, not going to grow so much, probably, right? It could even be yeah. flat or fall a little bit. It's okay. They had a massive growth due to the pandemic, and if things flatten out for a year or two, it's not the end of the world. It doesn't mean nobody cares about audiobooks anymore. But guarantee a year from now, if, if growth is a little flat or like 1%, they'll say, oh, audiobooks aren't the new cool kid on the block anymore. So no, to which I would say you heard okay. it here first. <laughs> so so all the people who want to listen to audiobooks are now listening to them, and you're making 1.6, billion dollars per year. I'm so sorry for you. Right, that if that's you can't the size of the market, nine billion. Yeah. Right, if that's the size of the market, that's okay. Yeah. Now, pop star Justin Bieber has been canceling dates on his current tour, and now we know why, actually. In an Instagram post, Bieber explained he has a rare neurological disorder called Ramsey-Hunt syndrome. It has paralyzed half his face, and if not treated promptly, the damage can include hearing loss and become permanent. According to the Mayo Clinic, it results from a shingles outbreak. It's actually a, an outbreak. Uh, it's the 
chicken pox virus kind of rearing its ugly head again. Big Which deal is or what big wolf. shingles often is. Yes. Yeah. If you've had, you're much more likely to have a sh you know, shingles. Uh, it's a, it's a big whoop, of course, except for, of course, Justin Bieber. So, you know, hope he gets better, of course. But, you know, get your shingrits shot, even if you've been vaccinated for shingles and this will help with this this rare disease and getting shingles in general, which is really not a good disease. It's really painful and unpleasant. You don't want it, especially if you've had chickenpox. And even if you had a shingles vaccine many years ago, they're recommending it. You get the shingles shot. It's in two parts. I got it. And, you know, you do not want to mess around with this. It's, I've had friends who've had shingles and it's just really bad. And hearing about something like this, you go, oh, my God. And there's a great way to help protect yourself and make it far less likely that you will get shingles or anything like this. Well, perhaps when you're when you're headed out to get your shingrix shot, I can't say that word, shingrix shot, you'll be running up a hill while listening to <laughs> Kate Bush. See what I did there? There you go. Uh, Stranger Things. It, you know, Stranger Things have happened than seeing a song find chart success years after it's fir it first came out. Nonetheless, Kate Bush has made it to the top five of the Billboard Hot 100. Woohoo! And, and it took longer than almost any song in history to do so. Her tune, Running Up That Hill, which I just made a poor reference to, was used in the Netflix show Stranger Things. And now it's jumped from number eight to number four. Billboard said that that was a record. Not a record jump, but a record, well, you'll see. It's a record for a non-holiday song, that is. Yeah, okay. Let, let's, let's keep it simple. Kate Bush's song took 36 years and change to hit the top five. The third longest span in history for a song to go from its chart debut to the tippy-tippy top, sort of. Two holiday songs took longer. Jingle Bell Rock and Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree. After Kate Bush, Mariah Carey's hit All I Want for Christmas is You and the Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody. That last song took 16 years to do it and had the movie Wayne's World to thank, by the way. Is all of this a big deal or a big whoop? Whoop, 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 whoop. Every, uh, oh. I can't, sorry, that's the beginning of Running Up That Hill. There's that weird little sound. I don't know what it is, but every time I think of the song, that sound runs through my head and I make it. My mom's like, what are you doing? Stop it. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> it's, yes, Billboard said, it's the, the, the longest time for a song to get into the top five after debuting in history. Uh, I mean, for a non-holiday song. I mean, on a Tuesday, you know, it's like, I hate all those qualifications. Like, it's the biggest family film opening on a Wednesday. It's like, oh, just, you know. Featuring a just, didgeridoo. And, yeah. Right. Keep it simple. It's the third. It took, it was the third longest song in history to go from its debut to hitting the top five. That's a huge accomplishment. No need to say it's number one for a non-holiday song. And furthermore, the reason those holiday songs didn't get back on top quicker is because of a quirk in the charts. For many years, Billboard ignored holiday songs. They just made a separate chart and said, well, those don't count. You know, they're just popping up every year, year after year around Christmas, and they don't count. You know, the real number one song is this, even though Rocking Around the Christmas Tree is more popular. It's like, no, make your charts reflect whatever is the most popular song of the week. Don't ignore stuff just because you think it shouldn't count. They do that on the on the book charts. You know, the New York Times bestseller list. It used to include whatever was the biggest fiction or nonfiction book. But then Harry then Potter became Harry so Potter. big. Yeah. And they're <laughs> like, oh, nothing's ever going to be on the charts again. It's like the books will fade, people. Relax. And they got tired of seeing Dr. Seuss's Oh, the Places You'll Go on the chart every year come graduation time. The result, the charts never reflect what are the most popular books of the week. And 
the next phenomenon, like all oh, the places you go or Harry Potter, isn't going to happen as easily because people don't see it on the New York Times bestseller list. So you're going to miss out on a bunch of other books. So let the charts reflect whatever is most popular. I'm annoyed that Billboard did it for so long and it kept those chart songs from being taking 60 years to get back on top rather than, who knows, 20, 30, I don't know. But it's annoying. And when you're doing records, just stay whatever the record is. Don't put all those qualifiers in it. If it's only the 50th biggest hit of all time, that's still a lot, you know? And you don't have to say it's the 50th biggest hit by a, a woman born in Oklahoma. Anyway. That uses a mandolin. Right. BTS continues to make history. Big deal, or no, I'm kidding. Uh, J-Hope, <laughs> okay, you know J-Hope. He is oh, yeah. one of its members, and he will be a headliner at Lollapalooza. That makes J-Hope the first Korean artist to headline a major U.S. music festival. Also performing? Now, I don't know, is it Tomorrow X Together or just Tomorrow Together? I don't know if it's Tomorrow By Together or X Together. I would just say Tomorrow X Together, because I'm not sure either. Well, they're the K-pop group making its U.S. festival debut. He famously almost left the group, by the way, and I guess we're talking about J-Hope here. That's right. Uh, b before it ever began. So I'm sure he's like, whew, thank goodness somebody talked me out of that. He is, in fact, it took two other members who, who broke into tears and convinced him to stay on, literally broke into tears. Everyone is on board and excited for J-Hope to break down this barrier. Big deal or big whoop? Well, it's a big confusion. I was like, has he left the group? Apparently not. Why is he doing he's not a solo? Going solo? He's not going no. solo. He's, he's not pulling well, a sting. He has solo stuff out or solo okay. mixtape or solo single or something, but he's still in the group, but he's doing a concert performance on his own. I don't know if he's the Justin Timberlake of the group like the or the Harry Styles where they just think, oh, he's the most talented and the most popular. I have no idea. And I spent half an hour trying to figure out if, you know, he'd left the band and they were just going to say, all right, we've only got 10 members now, you know, we'll be okay. But uh, everybody seems down with it. Everybody's happy. So I guess, you know, BTS is still rolling along and J-Hope's doing the show on the side. Well, sticking with music for a bit, the Grammys just added some new categories to the mix. They do not have best entertainment news show. So we're no. still out. Yeah, no. a Grammy will go to the songwriter of the year, though only non-classical. So you don't have to worry about Strauss or Bach, that hack, or Beethoven nabbing the top prize every every year, year after year. Another addition, a Grammy for the best song for social change. They're also closing a loophole and insisting an album must have 75% new material to be considered a new album. In the last few years, some acts would pad special editions with B-sides and live tracks so their album would be eligible two years running. Cheating. Other Grammys... Yeah, kind of cheating. Uh, other Grammys are up for grabs in categories like best score for video games, best American performance, and about 50 years after the... Now, I have never knew how to pronounce this. New Eurekan. New Eurekan Poets Cafe started. 50 years later, and, and they started hosting shows, I guess, in 1973, the Grammys have added an award for best spoken word poetry album. So, you know... Good on you for picking up on a trend there at Grammys. Big deal or big whoop? Well, New Yorkan combines New York, New York, and Puerto Rican. New Yorkan. So that's how you can maybe remember. New Yorkan, Puerto Rican, oh, okay. New Yorkan. Yeah. So that's what this And it was Americana performance, not American. That was my fault. I did a typo there. So yeah, they've added categories. Most of them make sense. They closed some loopholes. That's what they should be doing. However, it's also 10 gazillion categories long, which means... I know people at the Oscars are very sensitive about this, but they had that streaming category 
It's second class citizen, right? Orchestration and scenic design and costumes were handed out on the streaming service, right? That's what they did for the Tonys. And then they had three hours of performance for the live show on a network to try and get as many viewers as possible for the big awards. I, I, I see that happening more and more for the Grammys and maybe the Oscars and who knows the Emmys. Otherwise, you know, the show's eight hours long and nobody watches it. So, you know, you want everybody to be honored. You don't want to treat anything like costumes or editing as less important. They're not, they're crucial, but you got to make the show as entertaining as possible too. And I think this is just going to be the wave of the future, whether you like it or not. Awards are good. They help you find stuff you might have otherwise missed. How is (laughs) that? What is that? That's my new spoken word poem. Oh, okay. I'm trying to get a Grammy here. You know, I thought you were doing, doing, um, What's his name? The, the I have no John, idea. John, love it. Love it. John Lovett. John, John Lovett? <laughs> yeah. No. I was just like turning the next piece into a spoken word poem. I was going to submit it to the Grammys and I was because we were going to be a shoe in. I mean, how many people could be submitting spoken word poems? Very well. Quite a few. But anyway, keep going. Awards are good. Yes. Uh, you know, by the way, the same reason we have critics, uh, you know, awards help you find stuff. Critics help you find stuff because I am not going to watch 10,000 hours of TV just for you. OK, I don't Fair care enough. how many TV shows there are. Still, it seemed kind of exhausting when the Peabody Awards took like all week to announce this year's honorees. But when you break it all down, the 30 people and works honored, it isn't really that much. Terry Gross and Dan Rather got career awards. Summer of Soul was given an art award. Apparently, because it's a movie, I guess. TV stuff isn't art, but entertainment for some reason. That included uh, honors for Bo Burnham Inside, The Underground Railroad, Reservation Dogs, and more. Documentaries are called, get this, Michael, have a seat, because mm-hmm. he, this yeah. is going to totally floor you. They're called documentaries. Okay. Yeah. And half of them, by the way, apparently they come from PBS, half of the ones that won, including Philly DA and Mayer. And yet, Yet only three podcasts or radio shows, and none of them, not a single one, are called Showbiz Sandbox. I demand a recount. There was voter fraud. There won't be when they do the Grammys next year and we win for best spoken word poem. Uh, Big deal or big whoop? (laughs) I was going to do a word poem then, but I I lost my train of thought. Uh, It's a big whoop, of course. It is the Peabody Awards. It's very prestigious. Uh, I guess, you know, taking a week to to tease it all out is okay. I was a little bored by it, but when I when I looked at the stuff, it's, you know, they're good picks, they're good honors, and they do help point you towards things you should watch, like the TV show Reservation Dogs, like Bo Burnham Inside, and of course, Showbiz Sandbox. But they didn't really point yes. us out. Oh, oh, well. So should I do the next one? Because I think you have more to say about this than I do. Uh, yeah, but, so but I would have Disney- said you should have said for, for the last one, you could have said, whoop, it is big. Deal, it is not. No? Okay. I'm going to work on <laughs> so that anyway, one. top Disney exec Peter Rice was unceremoniously dumped from the company this week by the mouse of mouses, Bob Chapik, or better known as Bob 2.0. People were upset how coldly Rice was fired. No production deal, no graceful exit. What gives? Fellow execs anonymously told Kim Masters at one of the trade papers, they said it's another big mistake by Bob 2.0. Fellow co-workers wondered if Chapik realized how much Rice had endeared himself to employees with weekly Zoom calls during the pandemic. Maybe he knew that all too well. The board members gave a vote of confidence to Chapek, 
but still haven't renewed his contract, which runs out in a few months. And others saw this as simply a cutthroat move to oust an employee who was increasingly looked like Chapek's possible successor when Bob Chapek doesn't want a successor. Thank you very much. Someone's been watching HBO's succession and taking notes. So is this a big deal or a big whoop? And in comparison at Warner Brothers, Toby Emmerich was given a soft landing by Zaslov. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, so I think it's a big deal to answer the question. Uh, mm -hmm. I think everybody in Hollywood thought it was a big deal because Peter Rice, who worked at Fox for decades, uh, he was one of Rupert Murdoch's favored, I, I would say favored sons, but uh, he, he has actually sons. has sons. Yeah, uh, he was beloved by the Murdoch family and, and Rupert Murdoch, who moved him from Searchlight, where he turned Fox Searchlight into a, a perennial Oscar winner into uh, television, which was a big move that rarely happens for an executive to move from the film side to the TV side, where he was in charge of all of Fox's uh, programming, where he worked with Dana Walden, who then both of them moved to Disney. And there was has always been some question about, well, D Danny really can't move up unless he moves out. Uh, but then Kareem Daniel was put in charge by Bob Chapek. They reorganized all of Disney and they put Kareem Daniel at the head of some group that kind of decides what goes where. So content will be made. Kareem Daniels group would then say, okay, well, this is for Disney plus, even though you made it as a movie or right. no, in short, in short, in short, they came over to Disney. He felt demoted because somebody was put between him and Bob Chapek. And yet at the same time, every time there's an opening at a studio, everyone says, well, Peter Rice could be one of them. And so right. Bob Chapek might have felt threatened by him. He's having a rough time at Disney. And he said, you know what? This is my successor. Well, let's cut his throat and kicked him out. Won't be the first time at Disney that's happened. And it's not the first time it's happened anywhere else. You're in charge. You don't like the fact that somebody's looking too good. You kick him out. So yeah, maybe you know, it's as simple I, as that. Uh, yeah, I think it's also. Uh, yeah, th th that's one. That's one theory. The other the other thing that is interesting to me is that you look at Bob Chapek, who you know, the guy's been with that company in some form or fashion for 30 years and you have a 10 minute meeting with him and people like were very quick to point out it was a 10 minute meeting. Here's what was said. Uh, and Chapek would not tell him why, would not tell Peter Rice why he did just a fit bad fit, company. just not a good fit. Right. And so, and the best part of this is, you know, it does Bob Chapek feel insecure? Well, if so, Peter Rice does not feel insecure because Rather than say, oh, he's stepping down and here's a production deal. He said, no, 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 no. I want the headline to read, Peter Rice was fired. <laughs> he was like, I do not want to soften the blow. Right. No matter why you fired them, there was no reason to do it that way and just make people. It's going to be ugly no matter what, but you should have at least had a fig leaf. Right. Or, or at least done it in a way that like. I don't know. Yeah, I agree with you. Because then he met, Chapek met with the employees at, at Disney's television division, which is what Peter Rice ran. Uh, and it was like a five minute call and people were like, uh, you really, you're not hearing anything we have to say. Okay, so that, that didn't work. That didn't go over well. Yeah, uh, so there you go. Um, so that's over with and it's time for Inside Baseball. That's yeah, where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment biz buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and more importantly, how they affect you again, like that last story involving executive shuffles. That's your area. An exhibition is your area. And I feel like exhibitors are having a tough time and we've got one, two, three stories about exhibition. So first we've got Saudi Arabia.
Saudi Arabia opened commercial theaters. Everybody was excited. Unfortunately, they're not going to show Hollywood movies if you have gay people in them. For various reasons, countries in the Middle East and especially Saudi Arabia have banned films such as Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, West Side Story, and Eternals, all for what amounts to blink-and-you-miss-it references to queer people. Now, the latest to add to this list is Lightyear. The film originally included a brief peck-on-the-cheek sort of moment of intimacy between a female character and her female partner. This is bad news for Bob Chapek again. Okay, it's not like they were making out. It's a Disney Pixar film after all. The scene was actually cut from the movie, however. Then, when Disney CEO Bob Chapek screwed up his response to a Florida law targeting gay people and all his staff was angry at him, he said, hey, we don't want to talk about legislation. We just want to make important content that will promote our values. And then his employees said, really? Because he had cut the gay kiss from Lightyear and started listing all the other movies where they clamped down on what might be considered progressive content. And so he's all right, all right, put the scene back in the movie. Oh, and that means now it's not going to be shown in a number of territories, including Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Malaysia, and Indonesia. And who knows? Perhaps China won't be screening it either. So is this just a blip in the water? Or is this a real problem for, for Disney? Uh, I think... Um... <sighs> It's and all studios. A- I was going to say that's where I was yeah. headed. It's a it's a problem for all studios. So when they showed the thirty minutes of of Lightyear at at CinemaCon, exhibitors thought, "Hey, th- this movie looks pretty good." You know, they, they showed thirty minutes, and people were, and then they cut like right at the first act break where you'd be like, "Okay," and then what happens? But then walking out, you heard exhibitors saying, "Well, that's going to be a, a good movie for us," but you know, I don't think they realized that. There's two characters, you know, same sex characters in there and they have a baby and they, 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 they have kids. And I don't think they realize they're not going to be allowed to be released in China. And what about the Middle East? And in the same breath, they were like, well, I guess it doesn't really matter for us because we'll be able to show it, but not those other exhibitors to which I would say that's like the, the rowers in the back of the boat, not worrying about the rowers in the front of the boat because the leak is in the front of the boat. It's like, you're all in the same boat guys. So if they lose out on the first or second biggest market in the world, which is what China potentially is, that that's a big problem because big movies that cost a couple hundred million dollars to make need that cushion of all the money they can potentially make. However, if you make a movie and you decide, all right, not every movie is going to work in every territory and you can't cut and edit them to make them work for every territory, you you go in with eyes wide open and say, okay, this movie's got that. Okay, it won't play China. It won't play Saudi Arabia. Okay. And then the next movie maybe will. The problem, I think, is unlike Saudi Arabia, they're not saying we don't like that you had that in this movie and therefore we won't show any Disney film. <laughs> the problem is China where they say if you do something they really don't like, they may decide not to show any of your films. And that's where you really get into a problem. But if you you know make every movie to please the one-party state controlling China, you can really screw yourself over with the rest of the world and the creatives who want to make your movies. I don't right. think it's so that a, as an analogy there, like Tom Cruise and the, the jacket uh, in Top Gun Maverick, which has the Taiwan. The question is right. not, oh, will they ever release? Will China ever allow another Paramount movie? in? it's not only that it's will will China allow another Tom Cruise movie in because and, a, or, know, and Paramount and Paramount. Well, yes, correct. That's a given. Right. That's a given. Yeah, uh, that's a given that they might not. For right, a long correct, time, they want correct, to punish correct. them, right? Yes. So that's actually they took that step. They knew they weren't getting a release in China. They decided to show the logo of Taiwan, but only in the Taiwan territory. Thinking, well, all right, come on, you know, give us a break, China. And China may or may not. Maybe they will show Mission Impossible. Maybe they won't. That's part of the calculation you have to do and say, who are we making movies for? The Chinese Communist Party or for 
a worldwide audience. And if we can't make a profit without knowing we're going to be released in China and make X number of dollars, maybe we shouldn't be making the movie or maybe we have to make movies so we can afford to be whatever creative decision we want and not worry about that one market. It may be one of the biggest in the world, but you can't depend on it. And you can't, you know, you could have a TV show they object to, a documentary airing on a cable channel, and they say, we won't show your movie. So, or a book that you publish, you know, they can punish you for all sorts of things or something an actor says. So, you know, at some point you have to say, we've got to stop making movies and worrying about everything keyed towards this market with their unreasonable demands. Is it unreasonable for Saudi Arabia to say, we don't want queer people in our movie? Not particularly, but if it just means they don't show that movie, all right. If they ban all your movies, then you're really in trouble. Now, in the UK, they don't have the same trouble, but everybody knows that there are sensitivities around the depicting of Muhammad, the Prophet Muhammad, in visual arts, whether it's a cartoon, of course, or even a painting or a film, even where he's being shown in the most positive of lights, there are some uh people in Islam who object to that. Now, The Lady of Heaven is a movie, and it's not on our charts this week because it was yanked from screens in the UK. It's about the early days of the Islamic faith. It tells the story of Fatima, the daughter of Muhammad, peace be upon him. And there are two objections to this film. One, some Muslims vehemently consider any visual depictions of the prophet to be blasphemous. Now, they're not controversial in, for example, the Shia-dominated country of Iran, where depictions of Muhammad are more common, though not wildly prevalent the way they are, say, for depictions of Jesus in, in Western culture. Uh, the film uses digital effects to portray Muhammad in the scenes where he appears, so no one actor would be responsible for portraying that character. The other objection is to depictions of some of the early leaders and what they did. So now protesters marched out outside theaters. The chains that were showing it pulled it after death threats to their staff, made them feel incapable of showing it safely. It was a big disaster. You're sort of in a no good place. You don't want to give in to violence, but you can't put your staff at risk and you're not really equipped to deal with that sort of thing. Anyway, The Lady of Heaven costs $15 million to make and so far it's grossed $54,993. I think we're talking about a film that's not going to make its money back. <laughs> now, do you think, you know what, you should have just avoided this movie in the first place? That'd be the yes. easiest thing to do. Right? Yes, but so that means you're, 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 you're playing to violence and threats of violence and only a, a people who do well, not represent what I done. all Muslims. Yeah. Here's what I would have done. Knowing this, I would have actually asked uh, people who are better, uh, more adept at deciding that than I. Because I wouldn't know whether this movie, if, you had, if I was a film buyer at Cineworld, I would not know whether this movie would cause uh, a controversy. And apparently the controversy, the, the, the protests were 300 people from a very fringe uh, group, apparently. This is uh, right. Doing the, Sunni doing the Sunni faith, whereas uh, making death threats is not part of the, you know, part of a common Sunni faith. That's unacceptable for anybody. But the Sunni faith in general does, the Sunni branch of Islam does in general frown on any depictions of, of the Prophet Muhammad. You're, that's right. just not part of their tradition because in part uh, art of that era is calligraphy and other things that weren't visual depictions of people. But yeah, so you knew going in there would be some people who objected. Guess what? There's some Orthodox Jews who don't ever want to see two women together. China will never allow you to have a reference to Taiwan in a movie or the the Dalai Lama. So you know these people are going to object, but is that how you make your decisions based on one small group, whereas there are all these other people of the Islamic faith who may welcome the movie and people who are not of the Islamic faith who may want to see it because it's good.
I will say this: the uh, the UK exhibitors that did pull this movie, The Lady of Heaven, they certainly got a lot of flack for it, and I think mm-hmm. they will be they will now be twice as uh, they will be less likely to book a movie in the first place, which means the people who threaten them with violence have succeeded. Well, or that once booked, they will be twice as cautious about yanking it. They will say, thank you for your opinion, but we're not going through that again. So we learned our lesson with lady of heaven. We booked the film. It's booked to play through the end of the week. Uh, Whether we maintain it and, and, and hold it over will be based solely on business sense. And, don't think that part of this wasn't that the exhibitors looking at the the attendants going, nobody's even coming to see this movie. Why are right. we dealing with this? It got very poor reviews. Uh, and similarly, if some, uh, and death threats again are completely unacceptable, but if some progressives want to do a uh, protest outside a movie theater of the Cinemark chain showing 2,000 mules, this ridiculous pap that does not even count as a documentary and say, this is, you know, lies and scurrilous nonsense you shouldn't be showing this in your theater they could do that don't block the entrance be polite do your protest that doesn't mean they should yank the film you know it made good money for a documentary film if they want to deal with that that's okay people allowed to protest and they should be allowed to continue to show the film if they think there's an audience for it and they don't find it morally objectionable to their own personal beliefs so it ain't easy though i empathize with the theaters and i empathize with the people uh who have to see their religion tarred as, you know, something that's always going to threaten violence because that's certainly not what the vast majority of people of the Islamic faith believe in. They do not support that whatsoever. But then our final case is back to Disney. We had Disney on the charts. We had Disney in streaming, Disney fighting for uh, uh, cricket rights and giving up on some of them. And now we have Disney fighting against the rules in France for theatrical. Disney says they are skipping theatrical in France for their upcoming animated film, Strange Worlds, which opens in most countries this November. France is very unhappy about that. Currently, a movie that goes theatrical must wait 17 months before going to a streamer and then can only be on it for five months and then must be available to free-to-air channels and that lasts for 14 months and then three years after opening theatrically, it can go back to a streamer and be exclusive. So if Disney put Stranger Strange Worlds in theaters 17 months later is the first time. Rather than 45 days, they have to wait 17 months to show it on Disney+. Plus, and then they have to yank it after five months, make it available to everyone else, wait another 14 months, and then they can have it again. So three years after the movie and everyone's forgotten it, they can start showing Encanto again on Disney+. Plus. That doesn't sit too well with them, does it? Now, here's the question. Okay. They're still releasing Thor, Love and Thunder in July, and then Peter Pan and Wendy, and Pinocchio. They all seem to have theatrical releases in France. And after this movie, they seem to be releasing Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, Disenchanted, that's equal to Avatar, The Way of Water. Are they just making a symbolic slap against France? Do you think there's any chance they'll pull those other movies or any of them from theatrical in France? I think I think they will do that based on whether they um, whether they think they need it on Disney Plus or not. And remember, these are only for films that have appeared in a movie theater. Okay, so if they never appear in a movie theater, right, Disney they can, can do whatever they want. Yeah, right. right. Well, and, and what I love about this is we call this release windows, right? That that's kind of what what. Mm-hmm. But but of course, uh, I was listening to a podcast over the weekend, and they were talking about how France has to come up with its own. Uh, verbiage for things so that that <laughs> that it's in French and so in French it's called la chronologie des médias 
They can't say the, so the, the chronology the media timeline, of media. Yeah. The media timeline for when you can be on certain services. Yeah. That's, and that's very funny. But here's my thing. Not so long ago, Disney was 40% of worldwide box office. Right. I assume their movies were just as popular in France as they were anywhere else. If Disney yeah, actually yanked their movies from France theatrical and just put them online on Disney Plus, they would be losing 40% of their revenue. No, what theater in France can, what exhibitor can afford to lose 40% of their potential revenue? They're struggling to come back. If they don't get Avatar The Way of Water, if they don't get Disenchanted and Black Panther, that would really be hurting them. So if that's I what do Disney's wonder, and, and, and this is actually something that's worth exploring, how much does Disney account for box office in France? Because France is one of the countries that has a very robust local production where, where a lot of their box office comes from local productions. Unlike, say, Russia, where 85 to 90% of their box office is coming from imported movies, mostly well, and, and they have some good movies. Russia has some good, strong oh, yeah. filmmaking talent yeah, and there's some movies that play around the world. But that's okay. Let's pretend Disney's revenue is half in France, what it is everywhere else because of all this stuff. Say it's half as much. It's only 20% of the box office. No exhibitor in France can give up 20% of their revenue, much less 20% of the money coming into them from their cut of the box office, because that's what it would be. They'd be losing 20% of their potential annual revenue. If they said, okay, we're used to grossing $1 million at this theater and some of them are down to 800000 there goes their entire profit. You know, how, they would really struggle to survive. So this is a major threat to France if Disney goes beyond this one symbolic movie. I guess we'll have to wait to find out. Do you, do you want to know why you listen to Showbiz Sandbox? Why our listeners tune in to Showbiz Sandbox every single why? week? Why? Because even when we're having a conversation like this, mm -hmm. we can immediately tell you, like I raised that question. Well, I mean, it might only be like 2% of the, the box office. Or you right looked now. it up. 23.4% of market <laughs> share. Disney films account for in France, 23.4%. Oh, well, so a half of what they do in, in most other territories. And, uh, and yet still 20% is a lot. One out of every oh, yeah. $5. That's a huge money that nobody can afford to give up in terms of the revenue keeping these exhibitors alive, especially when they're struggling. And guess what? It's not small indie films and it's not the small, even French films that are going to keep them alive. It's movies like, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness and Wakanda Forever and Avatar The Way of Water. Here's what I think. I think Strange World is a movie they think, well, you know what? It's going to cost us X to put it in movie theaters in France. And you know what? Eh, we might make it back in France, maybe. Uh, but you know what? If we just put it on Disney+, Plus, it will actually get us some more subscribers on Disney Plus in France. And yeah, I don't that's think a lot of people rush to subscribe because of a single movie. You know, well, I don't know, but, but I guess what I'm saying is they're making a very calculated business and uh, deciding to make there. it political as well to say, we're not going to exactly. show it in theaters. Exactly. Well, that's, that's exactly what it is. Unless and until they say no black Panther, no avatar, no Pinocchio until they say that this is all bluster, that they're doing something for one reason and pretending it's for another. Uh, if they right, do correct. yank those other movies, that could mean the death of exhibition. Oh, oh, I see what you're doing there. You're talking about movie theaters are dying again. And if movie theaters are dying again, that means people are dying again. Because last week we dum, had no dum, obituaries. Dum, I did not dum, know Julie Cruz was that old. Dum, dum, I always just assumed she was like dum, in her dum, 20s when I worked. Julie dum, Cruz died. Dum, 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 dum.
And you're you're That's, singing the the uh, symphony number no. one or whatever it's called. Uh, the, the theme song from Twin Peaks, right? Uh, which uh, Julie Cruz died at the age of sixty five, and she was a frequent did, collaborator with uh, David Lynch. And she, uh, I guess, you could cue the dreamy gauzy music of hers that you were just uh, humming there, uh, because you know her and 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 Angelo Badalamenti uh, all worked with Lynch and helped craft uh, projects for her and her debut solo album. I worked right. with her actually. Oh, where? Now, I don't think 65 is old. Do you think 65 is old? I didn't. I, well, I just thought that she was uh, like. I'd be furious I if I died at 65. <laughs> no, I thought she was probably like 55 or like 50. Twin Peaks was 40 years ago. Okay. Well, then I'm old. Oh, it was a um, long time ago. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, I 30, guess she. 30 years she, ago, I guess. She died uh, at the age of 65. Mm-hmm. I guess, you know, songs floated through Blue Velvet, the TV show Twin Peaks, and all its various spinoffs of hers. Uh, she also toured with the B-52s at one point during her career. And her husband said on Facebook when he announced her death that he played the B-52 song Rome while she was dying. Rome is quite a peppy song. Rome, where you want to, Rome. You know, it's like a, Rome it's around the world. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of fun to think of that as, you know, not the typical quiet, gentle side. You're like, no, no, no. Go, you know, be fun, be free, have fun. So Especially given a, her music. Her music yeah. was very, like, like very low-key and... Dreamy, well, she branched out a little bit into electronic and some other sounds in later years, but not a lot of albums, not a lot of music that really stuck other than the stuff that Lynch and Angela Badalamenti collaborated on with her. But she has a little place in history. And her death was announced on June 10th. She died, I think, the day before or something. But we heard about it on June 10th, the anniversary of the final episode of the original series, which aired June 10th, 1991. So, yeah, the show is about 32 years old. Wow. So unless okay. you thought she was, you know, 12 when she did it, she's going to be in her high 50s or 60s. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, when you put it that way, I guess it makes sense. You know who was not in his 60s? was actor Philip Baker Hall, who died at the age of 90. I didn't know he was that old. I mean, he always looked like he was 90. He looked old, even back then. That's right. In recent years, fans of Seinfeld knew him because he played library investigator Lieutenant Bookman in a classic episode of the show Seinfeld. The part was so memorable, he popped into the finale as well. And fans of Modern Family knew him as a grumpy neighbor who befriended one of the kids named Luke. Uh, I didn't know he was on Modern Family in a recurring role because I never watched the show. Anyway, his career as the consummate character actor included a lot of peaks. First of all, he triumphed in a one-man show about Richard Nixon called Secret Honor, a great stage play. And then director Robert Altman turned that into a terrific low-budget movie made in 1984 during the years when Altman couldn't get arrested in Hollywood. It's a great movie. Uh, You really should check it out. It's one of his peaks. And then he got small parts in big movies after that, like Say Anything and Midnight Run. Then came a role that catapulted him and director Paul Thomas Anderson into the front ranks. They made the movie Hard Eight, or as the cool people call it, Sydney, because that was the original name of the film, and that's the name of the character that uh, Philip Baker Hall plays. He brought him to life so well, opposite John C. Riley, Gwyneth Paltrow, and Samuel L. Jackson. He was the star of the film. He made it. He made Philip, uh, Phil, uh, uh, excuse me, Paul Thomas Anderson's career. And they went on to make more movies together, like Boogie Nights and Magnolia. And that led to him working with Philip Seymour Hoffman on other films like The Talented Mr. Ripley. And a lot of other really good movies followed, like Zodiac, The Insider, The Truman Show, Argo, along with a lot of parts in TV movies that were less acclaimed. Nonetheless, in TV, he did everything from good times back in the 70s to BoJack Horseman. That's a career. 
Yeah, if you look up Philip Baker Hall, no matter where you are in the world, you'd be like, oh, that guy. Oh, yeah, yeah. That guy, I know him. Oh, <laughs> he, he is, died? He, like, he so, was yeah. so good in Heart 8. You're like, that's... And then you see you see Secret Honor. Those movies are so good. I remember Roger Ebert and... Uh, Ebert and Siskel and Ebert, rather, uh, you know, celebrating that movie, Secret Honor. That was when Altman couldn't get it right. He was making movies like Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean was Cher. He did Vincent and Theo. He did Secret Honor. He did Streamers. Like three of them were based on plays. He made a lot of good movies in that era. They were not typical Altman films, but they're great. And this is clearly, a, it's just him on a stage alone doing his performance. But it's such a good performance, a fascinating depiction of Nixon. Check it out. Well, and check us out. Okay, because, you know, we're, well, not next week, but the week after next, we will be around. Uh, and you know what? You don't want to miss one of our episodes. So the best way to make sure you don't miss them is to subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere they give podcasts away for free. You can usually find us. And please do rate and review the show in any one of those podcast aggregators that allows you to do so. It helps us out when you do. Links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode, all those ways to subscribe to us or write to us or call us or follow us or like us. All of that can be found on our showbizsandbox.com website. And you know what? You can email us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. Or you can leave us a voicemail, 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. Who knows? Maybe we'll play it at the end of one of uh, our episodes. Follow us on Twitter at showbizsandbox is our handle. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash showbizsandbox. Again, all that information on our website, showbizsandbox.com. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group, MGMT. They can be found on their own website, who is mgmt.com. Michael Gilt has a website, and every week it's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? This week it's com. I would have chosen runningupthathill.com, but somebody already has it. And you can buy it for $4,695. I bet they jacked up that price in the last few weeks. Or they didn't, However, and they don't know that it is probably worth a lot more right now. Oh, no, it's not. <laughs> it's not worth $4,000. Uh, but you, I've never seen this. You can lease to own the domain name for $392 a month. Isn't that bizarre? Yeah. Like, yeah, sure, we'll do it on layaway. Go right ahead, kid. Great idea. No, thanks. Yeah. You probably won't find my stuff there. Yeah. No, but you will find it on michaelgiltz.com. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com until two weeks from now. Play nice. <laughs>